0: mentioned 1980, um, and that came out in 1980. Yeah. That record included the, uh, what I call, melancholy funk of the title track, um, thumping funk of the anti-nuclear, uh, Shut Him Down, which uh, was a hit of sorts, um, Shaw Mott, The Shaw Is Dead, Checkmate was another funky cut. Yeah. To me, I unless I'm imagining again, I thought I heard a little Billy Preston influence. Um, cool.
1: Totally, I was definitely channeling my Billy Preston on that, you know, as far as uh, the gospel, you know, the, the gospel influences. Yeah, and that, that was you got it. I mean, that was that was it. You know, we're talking about uh, the Shah of Iran, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, an Islamic country. And I thought it would be I thought it would be kind of interesting to to um, to overlay like gospel, some gospel tone into that message.
0: So, yeah so in the last cut uh, late last night um, which unfortunately was kind of ended up being your last album cut uh, you know with with Gil but um, that one was really full of lots of orchestration you know um, I thought that was kinda of different from what you'd done before so um, other than that I think pretty much everything was intact from secrets from what I can tell but how did it, 1980 in terms of the process and the songs uh, differ from secrets? I think the main difference was
1: that, um, by the time I got to 1980, Gil had already recorded um, like uh, reference piano and reference vocal for for most of the songs, except for uh, corners, I think. And um, so, (laughs) When when he called me and, and told me he said when he called me and told me that he had been in the studio he said I'm, I've been having problems with um, with a lot of these these songs I can't go anywhere with them and I said well let me see what you got you know and I came in and um, the first thing I noticed was that he hadn't bothered to change the tempos on any of the <laughs> on any of the tracks so they were all pretty much kind of a very slowish tempo that he felt comfortable playing playing piano with and you know like nowadays you could just go into pro tools and you know pitch it up i mean speed it up or whatever but of course we couldn't we didn't have that option at the time so my job was to try and figure out how to make things feel like they were different tempos and that was basically the whole idea of behind all of that you know all that arrangement i would i would have preferred not to have used all that but it just seemed that it was the only way to mask the fact that everything was kind of slow
0: <laughs> and so you, you didn't come out with a record in 79 so what was happening uh with you and Gil and the label and the whole situation toward the end of the 70s decade um
1: yeah we had pretty much run our run our um uh, our course um i think that the music I it, it, musically I had I had evolved to a point that um I think Gil didn't necessarily agree with or or feel comfortable with and it became more and more obvious on live live shows that um I wasn't you know that that something was 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 not in sync things were not in sync and um uh, I know at some point I felt like I needed a break after years of doing like 200 plus uh, gigs a year, I felt that I needed to just step back and, and maybe have a minute to breathe and, and write some more songs. Gil on the other hand did not want to do that for whatever reason. He felt like he needed to push forward and, uh, and continue to perform. And so we agreed on a short break, um, maybe six month hiatus, so that uh I could I could have a life and he could have a life and then we could go on and, and uh, write some more material. But <clears throat> I soon found out, like within a couple of months, that uh, Gil had started performing with uh with the band without me. And so that was, you know, kind of the beginning of uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end.
0: Mm-hmm. Were there also some uh, label issues? And we didn't really talk much about the label, but I'm also curious you know, if there were any uh, pressures in terms of what you guys did creatively, um, what a single choice might be, uh, okay. trying to push you in a certain direction with a particular uh, record. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I don't think Clyde knew what direction
1: he could actually push us into, but he did say, <clears throat> he did say that he was expecting hits and um, this is what the one thing that he would always say after he auditioned one of our um, albums we would sit in this in the uh, in his office and he would say yeah I really like this stuff you know it's really good things really good material but I don't hear a hit which one is the hit (laughs) and we would say well you know there isn't you know or you pick it because we don't really care and so you know he did (laughs) I think that was a that was an ongoing problem for him he just wanted a hit he wanted another bottle, and the fact that we weren't really thinking about that at all was a, you know, was a problem. Was a problem for him. I think he attributed that more to me than to uh, since Gil wrote the bottle, he attributed it to me. Uh, you know, the fact that my, my my influence was the was the one that was causing everything to sound like jazz, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, it was. I think it was part of his agenda to make sure that, that I was out of the picture at some point. So we, yeah, we felt the pressure. You know, the pressure uh, and our manager at that time telling us the same thing. You know, we need a hit. This is your livelihood. You know, what are you guys gonna do? You know, when when you no longer uh, have a record deal or whatever. Blah, blah blah blah. So it was, yeah. But I mean, it just you know we had never gone into it for that. We hadn't gone into it to be famous or to have a hit or anything like that. So um it didn't really affect us you know I mean pressure I I, I, you can't really call it pressure unless it's working we didn't really care about that stuff so um you know it was it was what it was I mean later on of course when you get to be a little bit older and you realize that oh wow this is my livelihood you know what am I going to do when uh, when I don't get any more royalty checks or you know what am I going to do when I don't get any more gigs it happens, you know, you deal with it. I deal with it by uh, by getting a, a, uh, a job with this with the city. And, uh, you know, I supplemented my income with that. I never stopped working, but I never stopped uh, performing or, or writing or producing or any of the things that I do. But I, and as many musicians have to do, they have to supplement their income to make sure that they and their offspring and their families are able to eat.
0: It's, you know, ironic the way that kind of comes full circle in a way I'm thinking about how, you know, when you're a baby, you know, you need to be cared for and all that. And then when you're elderly, you kind of go back. And when you're a musician, you start out doing the small gigs and just kind of, you know, working a a day job and trying to get that off the ground. And then when the fame is gone, you kind of a lot of times have to go back to that. Yeah, you're back to being
1: a baby. Back to being (laughs) a, a baby again. Yeah. So...
0: Yeah, that's, that's how it happens, and, you know, I don't regret I don't regret it. Well, so, Brian, uh, Gil did go on to do a few more records in the early 80s, and, you know, he really kept a very similar sound, I would say. But mm-hmm. uh, one thing I noticed is maybe the bass was a little more up front. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, and he had a big hit with uh, a B movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what what did you think of, you know, his su- subsequent work in the early 80s? In the early 80s? Well, I, I mean, I
1: could definitely, um, I could, I could hear the the absence of, of what I, you know, what i added to it, but, um, and a lot of people did, I mean, a lot of people would mention to me, they would say, well, <clears throat> it doesn't sound the same. And I said, well, and a lot of people didn't know why, you know, a lot of people would say that to me, not realizing that they were talking to me, <laughs> you know, and, um, i mean obviously if you if you remove a key member of a of any organization the organization changes um and so uh you know gil's um, um writing was still uh he was still um, impactful and it was still um um powerful so you know b movie was you know i think it was great i think it was um, something that I would have expected him um to have done in honor of uh, of Ronald Reagan, uh, and uh, you know, for instance, a song like "Gun" or um, a song like "Give Give Her a Call." For instance, I mean, these are songs that I am not surprised, you know, at hearing at, at hearing him hearing him write um, "Message to the Messengers." I was happy when when I heard him do that. I thought that was that was important. Um, I think that it, that uh, hip hop artists do have a responsibility. They've always had a responsibility to uh, to speak out, but I think they have. I mean, I think that there are a lot of um, hip hop artists that. I mean, he was saying this at a time when it was Chuck D and, and Public Enemy. Um, <laughs> excuse me. So yeah, I mean, I think I think some listen. And some didn't. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's always going to be some artists who who uh, who feel the responsibility uh, to speak the truth, and then there are others who who don't. I mean, it's it's never that's not going to change, and it hasn't changed. You know, we have plenty of artists today who are still representing um, truth as they see it.
0: Brian, could you describe to me, you know, when things were at their at their best with you guys as a duo. What might it have been like to hang out with you two in the studio? What was the dynamic and creative process like?
1: So I mean we pretty had had written all of the songs. We we didn't believe in wasting time in the studio writing, you know, creating things. I mean there was some artists who had the approach of going into the studio and then figuring out what they were going to do. We just never felt like we had that luxury. And plus we spent so much time writing already that we we didn't need to. So we would rehearse our band, um, or we would rehearse together, um, you know, whatever it is that we were we were doing before we went in. So we had a pretty good idea of what we wanted to do. Then then came the experimentation, particularly in the later albums, where I would jump on the synthesizer bass and you know, try and come up with a decent with a decent bass line, and then you would add more and more pieces. More and more pieces to it, um, but uh, I was open. You know, it was we weren't we weren't rigid about about anything. Um, we kind of let the, the the flow of of ideas go through us, and whatever whatever happened happened. I mean, what we I've always felt that an accident there is no such thing as an accident in the studio, regardless. And you have to treat. Each thing, each event in the studio, as something that could be that could be valid. Um, and so, we had a lot of fun. I mean, I, that was my favorite place to be. The studio was my favorite place to be. I don't think it was Gil's favorite place to be, but it was definitely mine. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time. Spent as much time as I could.
0: Where Where did the uh, sort of album concepts <clears throat> come from? You know, in terms of you know what they might look like you know were you guys involved in that or was it more of the label how did that develop
1: we were usually involved in it. I mean you know we had uh, friends who were artists and we would ask asked them to do um, to do covers like the uh, the album cover on it's your world is actually um, something that was done by uh, hmm, no, let me go back. It wasn't into Your World. Um, we can go, I can go back to Winter in America where the inside album was actually a circular collage that was done by Morning Firm. Can you hear all that in the background? Hold yeah. Hold on. Um, So um that circular uh collage that was done in uh, that was on the inside cover of uh, Winter in America actually is something that uh, a good friend of ours mom had done based on the, the stories in the in the album of Winter in America and the outside cover was done by a good friend of ours named Eugene Coles an artist um uh the album uh bridges was done by a friend of ours named stan burnside who was a college buddy of ours so yeah we had we had um album covers that kind of represented who we were and and, and who our friends were and you know just that that, yeah that was an important that was an important part as well as the liner notes that we we took great care to write um we i've always been a big fan of liner notes one of my big beats against um MP3s and CDs. Yeah. Um, is that? I mean, there's got to be a way to bring liner notes back, even if there is no physical, no physical uh, um, item. You know, I think that liner notes still provide a very important um, piece to the to the to the creation of to the to the album itself, to understanding what you're listening to. And I, I think in some way or another, we need to try and bring album, we, we need to bring liner notes back in some form.
0: I'll sign the top of that petition. Yes, yeah, <laughs> sir. Yeah. So, you know, my 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 girlfriend at the time and now a wife of um, many years, <clears throat> you know, when I brought, I would share music with her, of course, because it's so important in my life, but um, Gil Scott was, Heron was one of the ones that I shared with her, and I thought that she would really appreciate it because she's very big on lyrics. And um, she couldn't get past his vocals. She did not care for his vocal style. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's always been one of his greatest qualities. I kind of liken it to Jimi Hendrix. Mm -hmm. You know, that Mm -hmm. it's stylized, it's not got a big range, but it's very heartfelt and it's Mm -hmm. very unique. That's right. How do you? What's your take on that?
1: Well, I think um, I get it. You know, I mean, I, I get it. it. It's not. It's a. It's kind of a rough. It's a, a kind of a rough voice, and, and sometimes sometimes it can be very polished, um, and it can be sometimes it can be very very harsh or um, or rough, and that was intentional, on for the most part. Maybe not so much at the beginning, but it was intentional later on. Um, he was able to shift in and out of personas based on the message that you know that he was trying to um, to convey. But I yeah I understand I get it. Um, it's not for everybody. I mean it's the one the one good thing I can say about his voice is that you either like it or you don't. There's no in between, and that's how he was as a person. You either liked him or you didn't, and there was really no in between.
0: Do you feel that um, the body of work from the 70s is received, it's just due, you? you know, because to me, I think of, you know, I compare, I liken it almost like Bob Dylan, you know, Bob Dylan wrote all these lyrics that are so, um, you know, referenced and, and worshipped in a way. And, you know, he, you know, was not an outstanding singer, right. but his body of work is amazing. He gets so much credit and so much yeah. due. Do. do. you feel yeah. like Gil Scott Heron gets his just due?
1: I think, um, I think that over over the years he has been he has come to be respected as a as a primary influence um, on uh, musical literature, if you will. Um, I personally believe that as a writer he uh, is he deserves to to be put in the pantheon of of, of great twentieth uh, century uh, literary literary figures. Um, he definitely compares in in many ways he was a a very skilled um skilled writer and i think that uh i think people have, have
0: come to understand that over the years well, one of my big beefs uh brian is there's no as far as i know there's no comprehensive box set of all of that work you know where where is that there's so much uh there, there is so much controversy
1: and, and so much uh boo-haha. Over um, the who owns what, and you know, and and uh, it's I I I wonder if it'll ever happen. You know, I just think that it's uh, there. The business, you know, Gil's Gil's business was kind of uh, in 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 shambles, as you can imagine, um, by the time he he passed away, and uh, so it's it's gonna be it's gonna take a Herculean effort to, to bring all of these things together
0: yeah that's a travesty hopefully it'll work itself out eventually Hopefully, yeah came um, back to your your work uh, post Gill, you know you did some uh, work with uh, uh, people at like Kulma gang George Benson Roy Ayers, who you're more recently doing work with and Will Downing uh, speak to some of that that work and what you're proud of there well, I'm I'm proud
1: of all of it. I mean, I, I have done. Uh, I I've worked with uh, on the road with Bobby Humphrey and uh, Philly Hyman, Phyllis Hyman. Um, I've done I've done I did an album with the uh, Cool the Gang. I did I did work with, um, like you said, Will Downing and uh, also Gwen Guthrie. I've also done tracks with uh, like Alabama Three, uh, Le Nu um, and and um uh, I've done a lot of things that I'm that I'm proud of. Everything I, I try to do to the best of my, uh, you know, to the best of my ability. And like I said, I think it's the fact that my broad, um, the broad spectrum of, of music that I listen to has prepared me has prepared me for those things. Now I'm, I'm very proud of what I've uh, of what I've been able to do to uh, to accomplish. And I, I work now. I'm working with uh, Charnette Moffett, the great uh, jazz bass player. Um, and a young violinist by the name of Scott Tixier, and I often uh, often mix it up and, and work on, on things together. I've worked with uh, M1 from Dead Preds and uh, and Gregory Porter, uh, and so I'm always I'm always looking I'm always reaching out to, to work with new artists to expand, as I said before, to expand who I am, you know, and, and my boundaries and what I can what I can learn and accomplish.
0: I guess when the um, <clears throat> new millennium came in 2000, you decided to finally put out your first solo record, right? <laughs> yeah, it took
1: a minute. <laughs> it wasn't an easy process, but um, I had some great writer, some great young uh, artists to work with, and uh, you know, it came together. and I'm looking forward to doing something uh, something similar soon. I'm, I'm working on a tribute to uh, one of my. Greatest influence is McCoy Tyner, so that's that's going to be a, a interesting, a
0: daunting, but but um, a favorite project. When you also did the um, uh, M1 project, uh, evolutionary minded, uh, just a few years ago, that seemed like a very ambitious project. I mean, you had uh, just some of the names: uh, Stan and Moore uh, from Galactic and Blackbird McKnight uh, from the Headhunters. And yeah. p Funk and Chuck D and Bill Summers and, you know, that must have been a fun project to do. It was a, uh, it was yeah. I mean,
1: it was it was a dream that I had had to try and get some of the younger artists who had, um, openly declared uh, that their, their um, that, that their influences some of their influences were uh, were music that that Gil and I had done. To come together and and try to give their take on on some of that music. You know, it's kind of like kind of what I'm doing, what I'm thinking of doing with uh, with McCoy, with McCoy's music. Um, it's certainly it's not going to be me doing McCoy Time's music. I mean, you know, obviously because I, I I'm nowhere in the same ballpark. But um, but what it is is McCoy's music through filtered through my spirit and through my eyes and through my ears. Um, and this is what I'd hope for when uh, we're doing when working with those with those artists. And that's exactly what happened and uh, yeah I'm proud of uh, I'm proud of the work that they did Martin Luther and uh, um, Gregory again Gregory Porter and uh, M1 and dead prayers Chuck D, uh, Blackbird like you mentioned Blackbird McKnight and uh, Stanton Stanton Moore uh, with uh, intercuts from from Bobby seal and uh, uh, it was just, a, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was a great project. Yeah,
0: I, I, I'm proud of it. I'm happy that it was done. Yeah, and there's a, a ton of music on there too. Yeah. Um. So, you know, Gil vanished for about a decade, from the early '80s until the early '90s. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, um, when he when he surfaced to most people, he was kind of a shadow of himself. It was. Very sad and hard to uh to see, um, but he came back with an album spirits and um and you actually guessed it on that. so I heard you in the um other um interview you did talk about um, that experience a little bit, but um, what did you contribute to that, and you know did you also keep in touch with him at all after that? No, that was actually
1: we hadn't even been in touch yet. At that point, we had had fell out of touch. We had fallen out of touch in 1980, and that particular song had been in the can from Secrets, and uh, it was um, yeah, it was it was a uh, a cover of a John Coltrane tune called Equinox, and um, Gil had written had written lyrics to it, and we recorded it. We never we just never released it on on. we didn't have enough space for it Um, and yeah he took it out of the took it out the can and and released it on on TVT (laughs) but that spirits album so we 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 hadn't actually gotten uh, back in touch until about 94 when we did a gig together at SOB's and then again in 98 when we did um, kind of an extended a more extended uh, a uh, set of set of gigs throughout uh, California and a few places in the, in the Midwest and and the South and the one eventful uh, um, tour that we had in mm-hmm. South Africa. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, you know I, I saw him in nineteen ninety three himself with the uh, piano uh, at a place called McCabe's in Santa Monica California yeah and um, I you know I didn't really know I had no idea what he had been going through before that and so it was really bracing you know to just kind of see him there and was in that very intimate environment it's only like 80 seats there okay. and um, <clears throat> he spent like pretty much the whole 80 minutes mostly just talking and going into and diverging into things and it ended up including very little music, so we were kind of baffled what was happening. Uh, but I did, you know, bring a record along. I got him to sign it, and you know, mm-hmm. that was all good. But um, it was, you know, frankly, we were we were disappointed and also concerned at that point. Yeah,
1: well, I understand. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> we're concerned, and rightfully so. So when he um, passed in 2011, he did a record in, uh, right before that called uh, I'm New Here. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about you know hearing that news and you know h- how how did it affect you and and what will you remember most about Gil?
1: Well, I wasn't surprised. Um, <laughs> I had often wondered. <coughs> Excuse me. I often wondered how he was able to survive under the um, the circumstances that he was that he was living in, and um, it just seemed that um, he was living on borrowed time. And um, so, when the first I heard was uh, when a New York Times reporter had called me in between um, a set that I was in between sets of a gig that I was doing, and she asked me for uh, a statement. Which I would not give her uh, because I wasn't I wasn't ready to process to process it, and uh, I didn't actually speak about it until several months later. Um, the Gill that that I knew was was nothing like the Gill that I met in the, in the nineties or worked with in the, in the late nineties or early two thousands. So, in a sense, I lost my friend a long time before that. And, um, you know, this new guy uh, was was not somebody that I particularly cared for or even, you know, um, or, or really had any, anything in common with, except that when we went on stage, we worked together, there was that old chemistry. It lasted for the time that we were on stage or the time that we were playing, and then that was it. So. Um, it was the glimpses of you know of the old friend and the old friendship um, that that hardly ever lasted, and um, so I had actually made peace with that long before Gillen had actually physically passed away, and uh, you know that's that's kind of what that's how I, what I will remember him as is um, is as the guy that I that I knew the guy that I met at. Uh, in the music room, in the practice room um, at Lincoln University, um, with the fro that couldn't get through the door, and uh, the um, kind of mumbling, insecure type of uh, um, um, speaking speaking manner, manner that he had, um, that would sometimes become extremely clear and extremely pointed
0: uh, when it needed to be. Yeah. Brian, we uh, touched on this earlier about the um, thread that runs between funk and jazz. And there's been so many jazz artists that have, you know, at least tried their hand at funk. Mm -hmm. And also it seems, you know, that this same thread goes through a lot of hip hop, you know, in terms of the lyrics. And of course they've sampled so many of the funk and jazz tracks. What do you feel is the, the threads that bind these three genres together?
1: I think that in, in all of, um, of black music, the, the one thread that, that binds them all together is African music. You know, it's, it's rhythm, it's, um, it's the drum. It's the thing that, that, that brings all um, black music together. And I mean, it, it's it's been that way continually. I I don't see it changing. I mean, you can hear African rhythms in every form of um, American music that has um, that has been played since the very beginning. And and it will be. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's conscious and it's unconscious. It's it's both. But it's what we have. It's what you know. It's basically how we learned to think musically, how we all hear music. We hear it through, through the rhythm, through the rhythm of the drums. And uh, what is the rhythm of, our, of the drums but just like the recreation of our heartbeat. So, and the division um, of the rhythms of our heartbeat. So, yeah, I mean, it's always, that's always gonna be the basic element and everything else is just like different toppings and different flavors.
0: Jazz artists in particular, though, have taken such a beating a lot of times, you know, when they try to do uh, funk, um, that it's kind of beneath them, or especially if it's, um, you know, a little more commercial funk and not hardcore funk. But, you know, Herbie Hancock's gone through so much of that. Um, it's, do you think that's, that's fair? I mean. It's, well, it's fair
1: when, you know, I mean, it's fair when, when, a, when a musician does it just for the numbers. When they do it just to sell records or just to sell – just to sell product, then it's not fair. Hey. Hold on one second. Going for me? Oh okay. Where you going? Okay. Oh yeah, that's your book.
0: Well.
1: I'll see you.
0: Wednesday. What's that? Wednesday.
1: So it's Friday. Friday.
0: Okay.
1: Wednesday Oh, whenever. You, you just let me know. You know, you can always come. Okay. All right. Your mom says we have to talk about. Uh, It's my college-bound daughter. <laughs> She's going to be going to college next year.
0: Wow, you got a big spread. I got a spread, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so pick it up from uh, talking about, um, you know, if it's uh, fair for jazz artists to be yeah. criticized for, you know, doing the other stuff.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's fair when when the musician is not sincere about what he's doing. Um, there are a lot of artists who have tried to dabble in hip hop and you know, and soul and R and B, and you can tell that they never listen to any of it. You know that they don't really, they don't really even necessarily like it. They're doing it because uh, maybe their label told them to, or maybe instinctively they felt that they that it was the best thing for them to do so that they could sell some units. Mm-hmm. If you're doing it for that, people are going to hear it. They're going to hear the insincerity of it. They're going to hear the inauthenticity you know, of it. And they're not going to gravitate toward it, you know. So, is it fair to say those guys should leave it alone? I totally agree. But for somebody, <coughs> for somebody like, for instance, Herbie, who I know was totally blown away by 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 Sly, you know, by Sly Stone, or Miles, who was totally blown away by by Jimi Hendrix, you know, or. Or somebody like, like me, for instance, you know, who's like totally blown away by public enemy, totally blown away by by um, by Diggable Planet, totally blown away by Kendrick Lamar. I mean, you know, this is like not something, you know, for me, it's not insincere if that becomes a part, if that becomes a part of who I am. I'm not doing it, it's doing me. You know, it's informing me, it's making me who I am. So. I couldn't not do it if I if if I wanted to. For those, for those musicians, and there are many, for those musicians, yeah, it's it's not fair, it's you know, it's not fair to say that they shouldn't that they shouldn't dabble in, in those interests because they're they're interests, you know, they're they're genuine interests, they're not uh, they're not tools to
0: to sell you gotta keep it real and honest and you gotta have truth and rhythm yeah yeah but
1: by the same token i'm not going to confine myself to one one genre either just because people think that i should you know and you know because there are other artists who would say you know what i'm really interested in those things i'm really interested in hip-hop i'm really i had i had encountered with a with an artist like this and he was really into hip-hop but he felt at the time that he would lose his his fan base you know, if he got involved in it. And um, in the end, like six months after after that, another artist came out doing very a very similar thing and became and, and it became a, a huge hit and it was very well respected in the music in the music community. So you know you just have to have to be you. You gotta be who you are. Brian, what are your most
0: proud about concerning your musical accomplishments and why? My musical accomplishments, one of, what
1: am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that at even at 60 almost 65 years old that I can still learn. You know, that I can still learn something. I can still um, be I can still be blown away by, by somebody that I you know, that I haven't heard it all. I haven't seen it all. And um, I don't expect that I. I don't expect that I ever will. You know, I think my biggest accomplishment is that I, I'm still able to learn, and I still, I'm, I'm still incorporating um, those things into my music, and I'm proud of that. You know, that's it. I mean, you know, for the most
0: part, I'm still growing. And you talked about continuing to perform and some of these other projects you're doing. Um, you know, if, is there any chance that, uh, you know, people listening or watching this might be able to see you perform somewhere? What's your situation with that? And when you do perform now, do you do any of the songs that, you know, Gil used to do the vocals for?
1: I do, yeah. Sometimes um, I will do a, a show called Recollections in which I found that, you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned the Red Bull Music mm-hmm. Academy interview that I did, I find that a lot of younger, Artists and young younger people enjoy um, listening to the stories about how that music came together wow. and um, some of the, the ideas that that surrounded it and some of the the, the feelings that uh, that we we were having um, growing up in that in that time period. So I've incorporated within I've incorporated that within uh, my show. I I explain uh, how certain songs came to be and what they need to be and um, you know about the circumstances about how they about how they came about and so I call it recollections and it's uh yeah I mean you know I I do do that and then aside from that when I'm not doing that I'm I'm working as a sideman a sideman in particular right now doing a lot of work with uh, with bassist uh, Charlotte Moffitt so um, if he's in town You'll probably see me tagging along, um, or look for uh, recollections, and um, you can always stay on top of uh, what I'm what I'm doing on uh, Facebook, or Instagram, or on my uh, website, brianjackson.net. Uh, from Face Face Facebook is Brianjackson.official official, and uh, Twitter is brian underscore underscore Jackson. Same with Instagram. So yeah, there's a few ways that you can stay in, in touch and see how i see how I'm doing and what I'm doing and where I'm doing it.
0: Fantastic. And we're so glad that you are continuing to do it and you're still mm-hmm. looking to grow and you're still out there. I mean, you're the original authentic item. So keep doing it, man. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks,
1: you, Scott. <laughs> keep doing what you're doing too. It's important. Oh, appreciate it.
0: With that, it's time to wrap up this edition of Truth and Rhythm. A huge thanks to my special guest, jazz funk soul giant, Mr. Brian Jackson. Thank you again so much, Brian, for sharing your time and experiences. It's been a blast. Thank you, Scott. Same here. Uh, also, sincere thank you to our listeners and our viewers. If you're an artist or music music industry figure interested in being a guest on this program or a fan wanting to see a particular guest, drop me an email Scott G at funkinstuff.net, and we'll try to make it happen. With that, until next time, on behalf of Brian Jackson from uh, Brooklyn, New York, and Charlotte, North Carolina, this is Scott Goldfein saying, Keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.